You are listening to the most comprehensive source for news and views about today's unions. This is LaborUnionNews.com's Labor Relations Radio and your host, Peter List. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! workers all over this country who work for the railroads. People who are working at dangerous jobs and inclement weather have zero paid sick leave. That is outrageous. And I think it's incumbent upon Congress to do everything that it can to protect these workers, to make sure that the railroad starts treating them with the respect and the dignity that they deserve. Thank you very much. So will you support the deal? Hey, thanks for turning on and tuning in to Labor Relations Radio. So that was Senator Bernie Sanders talking to reporters today about the president's request to Congress last night to impose the labor contracts on four different railroad unions or railroad workers who have rejected the contracts that the Biden administration helped to broker back in September. And to give you a quick synopsis of it, there are... 12 different unions with 13 different contracts. There's a union that has a couple contracts and they have been negotiating since about 2020 and they have failed to get contracts without intervention by the government. So back in June, President Biden appointed a presidential emergency board, which is his right to do under the Railway Labor Act who came up with some recommendations and then sat down with the unions and the railroads, and brokered a deal back in September. Over the last couple months, this is pre-midterm elections, that you may recall the media out there touting that there's a deal, no threat of a strike in the railroad industry, etc. However, over the last couple months, the unions have, one by one, mostly ratified the agreements that the Biden administration had brokered. And there are four different bargaining units that have not. And as a result of that, on December 9th at 12.01 a.m., there could be a work stoppage of one or more of the railroad unions. If that happens, all 12 unions have vowed to honor each other's picket lines and effectively shut down the railroad industry throughout the United States or the supply chain, if you will. So under his authority, under the Railway Labor Act, President Biden last night, called upon Congress to enact legislation to impose the contracts as written. Now, Congress has some other options that it could do. They could impose the contracts, as President Biden's asking, or they could change the contracts and impose them, or they could allow the unions more time to negotiate. President Biden has said he doesn't want that to happen because it would be fruitless. In any case, um, what is likely to happen is they're probably going to force the contracts on the workers who rejected it. Now, as of this morning, President Biden's getting a lot of backlash from people like Sanders as well as others on the left. In any case, I sort of forecasted this uh, about a week ago when I was invited to go on Sirius XM with a friend of mine who's a reporter by the name of Carrie Pickett. And she was asking about the possible strike that was going to happen in the railroad industry. And I stated on the show that I did not think it was going to happen. The stakes are too high. I also don't think that the Congress is going to alter the agreements. And the reason for that is you have eight other bargaining 
units or eight other unions with nine other bargaining units that have accepted the agreement. And that would show disparity within the railway industry. So Biden's probably going to have Congress and most of the Democrats and Republicans will fall in line and support legislation to force the contracts. But that brings me to my guest today. Carrie Pickett and I have known each other for many years. Um, I've gone on her show when she's filling in for Andrew Wilkow on Sirius XM. And we had this discussion about what was likely to happen uh, last Wednesday, I believe. In any case, um, I wanted to have Carrie on the show because I wanted to talk to her about journalism. And it just so happens we had set up last evening to talk right as Biden's announcement was coming out. In any case, our conversation was mostly about journalism and, and what's happening in newsrooms across the country. So without further ado, here's Carrie Pickett. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Well, Carrie Pickett, welcome to Labor Relations Radio. And for once, I get to interview you after you having me on on the uh, SiriusXM a couple times. Mm-hmm. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So can you, I, I don't know if the term veteran investigative reporter is the correct term, but you and I have known each other a long time and you've been writing for a long time. But can you tell the listeners how you got into being a reporter? Well, the term veteran sometimes, it, even though I know that's supposed to have a, sort of a people are supposed to compliment you for your experience, but sometimes it also denotes someone is old. So, uh, <laughs> seasoned, <laughs> seasoned, a seasoned reporter. Uh, <laughs> but um, I kind of fell into it, believe it or not. I mean, uh, even though I was a English writing major in college, uh, when I graduated. I really had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. Here I was with my English writing degree. What do I do? I'm like, I have no idea. Um, so I actually was working for my father uh, in uh, commercial real estate. Deals. And uh, very often people will ask me, well, what, what was one of the uh, uh, most uh, probably necessary things for you as far as uh, journalism is concerned? And I said, actually... I will probably tell any reporter that uh, going into sales was probably very necessary for me because uh, it taught me how to have thick skin and, uh, you know, really walking up to uh, just complete strangers and doing a pitch, Yeah, because then later on when I am working up on Capitol Hill or going out into the field and walking up into to a complete strangers and asking them questions. That was really sort of necessary for me. So uh, going back to your original question, how did I fall into it? Well, eventually in the early 90s, um, you know, I, I was learning uh, HTML and uh, Photoshop and and, and, and whatnot, and uh, I eventually ended up getting a job with uh, MTV.com when all that was actually necessary to um, to uh, build web pages. And, and then I got a job at MTV Radio where I was actually using my writing skills to, uh, you know, write long-form, short-form uh, programming. And uh, then got a job with the Howard Stern Show where I was a production assistant for uh, Robin Quivers. But I, I got to tell you, I mean, while I respect the uh, entertainment news industry, I mean, look, you you have to be really good and and really 
devoted to want to stay in the entertainment news industry. I was more interested in hard news. And so I eventually transitioned over to uh, going into the hard news industry. I, I moved to Washington and I eventually ended up uh, working for Newsbusters with the Media Research uh, Institute and uh, eventually got my job over at the Washington Times on the opinion side. And then I went over to Breitbart and then I went to the Daily Caller and then I went to Washington Examiner. And now I'm back at the Washington Times. I gave you a very sort of uh, condensed version of my resume there. And I'm trying to remember if you were at either the Daily Caller or Breitbart, which I think was pre-Breitbart, right? Um, big government both. or something? No, I was at both. Yeah, I, I did both. So I, I went uh, I went Breitbart and then I went Daily Caller. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, see, I, I think we met in around 2010, if I recall. Yeah, yeah that yeah. was uh, Washington Times. That was when I was blogging for the Washington Times. Um, and... I think uh, I, it's sort of important to remember that some people say, oh, you're just a blogger. But you, you know what? Remember that blogging around 2010, you had a lot of news sites that hired bloggers for their opinion page. And that's what the Washington Times did as, as far as I was concerned. Um, they wanted a blogger who would go and break news. Uh, so they essentially sent me up to Capitol Hill to be their opinion news blogger, which kind of uh, was sort of like a you know interesting sort of combination uh, thing there. And uh, I would you know I, I was almost dangerous to the point of like you know I, I was like self publishing my pieces, which, which looking back I'm like oh my god I can't believe I was self publishing myself. You mean without anybody <laughs> editing? Uh, Oh, yeah, very often. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And yeah, like, you know, and look, I wasn't the only one at the time that, you know, like that was kind of like an en vogue kind of thing, you know, like a lot of places were like allowing their like bloggers to just self-publish like poof, like, yeah, sure. Get it up. Because at the time it was all about speed because people wanted to get their bloggers um, like breaking stuff up there because it was all about getting your stuff up, up to drudge first. Remember? Right. It was all about get it to drudge, get it to drudge. Who gets it to drudge first? You know, I mean, now it's a kind of a different thing. It's no longer about getting it to a drudge first anymore because, you know, obviously drudges has like changed completely when it comes to conservatives. Um, but, uh, you know, now my uh, now my function over at the Washington Times is different. I'm over on the news side. And, uh, you know, it's a, uh, I'm, I'm covering Congress, but it's a different function. Yeah. You've, you've interviewed Congress people, senators and governors, governors. Yeah. yeah. Sure. Oh yeah. Um, presidential candidates, uh, you know, speakers of the house, you know, both sides of the aisle, obviously. Well, what I like about your reporting is you don't, you don't let them slough off answers. Like they don't deflect. You'd like drill into, you know, here's the, what's, here's the question. Are you going to answer it or not? Yeah. You know what, Peter, uh, this is the funny thing about it is I'm more pointed in my questioning and I'm fairly aggressive in my questioning and the uh, people who I talk to sometimes get a little turned off by that. And I understand that. Hey, look, if I was them and dealing with me, I, I would certainly react that way. Um, but when the actual piece is produced, uh, you would never think <clears throat> that, 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 that the questioning was actually that aggressive. Right. You see? Right. Um, 
but but who benefits? The readers actually, because they actually end up getting a piece that doesn't have a whole bunch of evasive answers. So I I asked you kind of to go down that memory lane because I wanted to get your opinion of where you see journalism today. Hmm. And I've, I've noticed that it seems to be um, almost back to blogging, but from a completely biased side, if you will. Uh. And, and where you've got big named outlets, whether it's Bloomberg, whether it's Washington post and, and some of the, New York Times has always been from from the left, but sure. some of the more traditional news outlets are now like pretty darn biased. Well, look, uh, there's lots of places, uh, you, know, you know, like 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 a lot of places were always biased. It's uh, it's like anything else. It's a. Uh, it's whether or not they just chose just to come out and say, guess what? We're always biased and we're just going to tell you we are biased because this is what's going to get the clicks for us. Um, This is about trying to figure out what's going to um, generate some sort of income for them uh, more than anything else um, and how they can do it on, uh, on a, on a slim budget as far as staff is concerned. Uh, Now, as far as blogging goes, uh, are they going back to a blogging thing? Well, I mean, I think it's disguised as reporting, right? But it, it's more overtly slanted. You know what? This is one of those things where uh, there are so many different styles of report. I'd say so many different, but there's different styles of of a reporting. So because like they'll hire, for example, like over the years, a whole bunch of 20-somethings who just want to get into the business, you know, uh, whether right out of journalism school or right out of college, maybe out of an internship, and they'll say, welcome to this brand name, corporate brand name thing. You finally made it. Here's your business card. Aren't you, you know, here's your email. You can impress all, all your college graduate friends with all of this. And now... What you're going to be doing for our wonderful company, you're going to be aggregating all of this news, you know, all day, all day long. And, you know, but isn't it great? You can say that, you know, that like you work for our company and you can brag about it. You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, and then, and, and then the lead of your piece is, okay, uh, you know, su- such and such happened on, on, on such and such day. Uh, and according to another website that's that's reporting this, this is what they're saying. So you see what I'm saying? Because basically they're not doing any original reporting right now. You're an all echo chamber. Doing, yeah, exactly. All they're doing is just aggregation all day long. And at first, it's just great for the fact that they got their first job and they're and they're just working for this wonderful company that they've dreamed about reporting for. But after like a month or two, you know, while they're, while they're doing all this non-original reporting, all this aggregation, it gets kind of boring. And, and while they're looking at other reporters who are doing original reporting and they're saying, yeah, but I want to start breaking news. I don't, I don't want to just pick up pieces from CNN and NBC and Washington post. I, I want to start doing stuff that I broke. I want to start like calling up sources and start, you know, putting stuff under my byline that I actually did. And it starts to get annoying, you see. 
you know, I want to go out to the field and start sticking recorders in, store, in sources' faces. But it's, you know, and that's how they begin to sort of get bitten by the bug and start wanting more, you see? How, what percentage, uh, this may be an unfair question, what percentage of reporters are original content, news-breaking type versus the echo chamber? Oh, yeah. Well... I don't know if you'd know that, but... I, I, I wish I could give you a an actual number, but I really don't know. But I, I can tell you it's it's um, not it, it's it's much smaller um, uh, than than the aggregators in the echo chamber, uh, because the aggregators, you know, they need to put up content, you see. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the whole point of like online is is to you know fill you, it is to fill your website up you see now some websites um like you know like like my previous employer like the Washington Examiner like they will um they will do a lot of aggregation while like other websites may like prefer to instead of doing a ton a ton a ton of aggregation they will um put up AP wire instead you see, and um, right. and of course, you know that comes with with a cost. So it really depends on you know what a uh, what a website chooses to do and how much money they have to actually do it. Well, I think um, I think the citizen journalism seems to have dissipated quite a bit. The one the one from the the citizen journalism from say 2010, 2012, that seems to have kind of waned quite a bit. You know what, Peter? Um, I remember back in, I don't know if it was 2010, 2011, but it was like during that era, I did a panel for a, a smart girls conference. And, uh, I was really uh, pushing this whole idea because you know that was you know the, the like the big era of like Andrew Breitbart, and there are a lot of bloggers out here who want to get into um, professional journalism or, and and whatnot, but the big but the big problem with a lot of people who want to do a lot of citizen journalism is that they want to cover national stories too often. They want to be national pundits. They want to be, they want to talk about what's happening up on Capitol Hill. They want to talk about national stories, period. Where, but what they don't seem to realize that is that that's not going to be their strength because they're not in Washington, D.C. They're not in, uh, yeah, they don't have that platform. They don't understand that their biggest strength is local reporting they their eyes are on the ground right there and right. what they and what they have to do is is go to where the school board meetings <laughs> i was pushing that back then i said i said go to your pta meetings go to your school board meetings go yeah i'm like you have the eyes on the ground talk about that okay and everyone just sort of looked at me like oh Okay, Washington Times reporter. <laughs> right. Credential. <laughs> I mean, you're talking down like, to us. Oh, 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 oh my God! Like somebody on that panel who shall go unnamed. Okay, because I'm. 
But he looks at me he's like, okay, maybe you with your Washington Times credential, you can just uh, go and just witness the birth of Sarah Palin's grandchild. But the rest of us, we don't have that opportunity. And I looked at this fellow panelist. I was like, look, okay, I'm saying that you have the ability to have eyes on the ground that people in Washington, D.C. don't have. You're the eyes, you know? Right. And everyone just kind of blew me off. I was like, okay, whatever. And then, and now here we are, like 10 years later, 12 years later, and, and what's the rage? School boards. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, it's interesting. There was, um, I think Huffington uh, started it, but Patch.com, do you remember that? Yeah, yeah. That had the possibility of being a really good idea. And, of course, they sunk millions into it, and, and it pretty much folded. But I, the potential for that, having local reporters, citizen journalists, whatever, contributing to local newspapers all around the country to a main hub was a great idea. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I... And, here you had conservatives who were so enamored still with this whole idea, like conservative bloggers still with Fox News. Like nothing wrong with Fox News. Don't get me wrong. I'm not being up on Fox News, but they were so enamored with getting on to Fox News, with so right. enamored with becoming a big talk radio host, uh, with like getting syndicated and so on and so forth, that they just didn't have the just didn't have their eyes on where they could have really pumped up their strength, which was local stories. So where do you see it going? Um, Actually, believe it or not, the good news is, Peter, is that I do see it going more towards local um, right now because of, you know, finally uh, people are realizing that they uh, kind of lost their grip of uh, of what was happening locally. All of a sudden, they they realized that uh, that when they kind of lost track of what was happening in their own hometowns, and they were looking too much up at Capitol Hill, um, they realized that that they really had to start um, being the watchdog of their own uh, hometowns. Do you, do you attribute that to the school board stuff? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and also uh, what, what's been happening with the uh, voter integrity stuff as well. Who, yeah, Arizona right now. Arizona, Pennsylvania, all over the country. I think uh, you have people who are realizing, uh, look, the, uh, a lot of these issues – don't get solved up on Capitol Hill. They get solved at, at the state and local levels. Right. Do you, um, yeah, I was wondering, what's your thoughts on the midterms? Um, you know, one of the things that uh, people are coming away with right now is that, uh, you know, they need to uh, see what the Republicans um, and the Democrats um, are going to sort of uh, end up 
sort of fighting over in the uh, in the in the new Congress. I mean, of course, you know, there's two races now that are going to be decided. I, I realize that Republicans are uh, disappointed, but you know what? Uh, they didn't really have a, a whole lot to offer other than Democrats bad, this was bad, and we're going to take them down in these investigations. Let me tell you something, Peter. I just posted a piece, go check it out, thewashingtontimes.com. Um, it is going to be a complete and utter messy uh, next Congress, simply because while the Republicans are going to be going after Hunter Biden and Joe Biden and all these launched investigations, it's going to be the 1990s all over again because they've because now David Brock's group, along with two other groups, they've they've already released Oppo research on Jim Jordan, on uh, James Comer of uh, Kentucky, and it's not just going to be Jim Jordan and James Comer who they're going to be attacking. It's going to be every single House Republican that they're going to be digging dirt on. Okay, whether it's whether it's their backgrounds on finances, whether it's their personal backgrounds, it's like I said, it's going to be the 1990s all over again. So watch for that. By that, you're referring to the Clinton uh, impeachment. Clinton impeachment all over again. Watch yeah. for that. It's you know it. It seems as though every time the parties switch, it's they spend all their time doing investigations about themselves, and meanwhile, you know. Life is going on in America, sometimes not so good, but we see whether it's Pelosi or McConnell or whomever, you know, Jordan, they're on the evening news talking about their hearings, and it's just a waste of time. But but you see, here, here's the thing, though, is that of all the House Republicans that are going to be in the new 118th Congress, only I think about seven Republican members on the House side were around during the Clinton administration. Hmm. And that means all that institutional knowledge about how things were during the Clinton years is not exactly there. And like, I don't think they realize the buzzsaw that they're going to be walking into because when they start to like dig up all this dirt on their backgrounds they're going to be like, oh, my God, oh, my God. Uh, and you're going to have all these reporters who are going to be sending all this crap to them about, uh, well, what about this? Well, what about that? Well, what about this? What about that? While they are digging up stuff on Hunter Biden, on Joe Biden, and all this stuff. And it's, by the way, it's not just going to be on on the chairman and the uh, GOP lawmakers. It'll be, on, it'll, it'll be on their staffs as well. That's interesting. Yep. Yep, go check it out, WashingtonTimes.com. Check out my piece. I just dropped it. Okay. I will link it um, under the audio portion of this as well. So let me go back to the newsroom for a minute. Um, I've been seeing, and of course, you know, I've got an aggregator that posts all union-related stuff, but I've been seeing a tremendous amount of generally pro-union, a tremendous amount of articles by that just weren't there five, six, eight years ago. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And it, it's the reporters there. And I've, I've said for a long time, a lot of the slant that comes from some of the newsrooms is due to the fact that they might already be unionized. But now yep. we're seeing more and more newsrooms getting unionized. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you've seen that with the, um, you know, Vox was a few years ago and, and there's several others uh, more recently, but they're, you know, they're getting unionized. The reporters are out in Pittsburgh, the Post-Gazette work, uh, reporters and staff are out on strike. And so I'm wondering if that taints the news as well. I wouldn't be surprised. Um, the, uh, the organizers are working very hard to get newsrooms unionized, to get more newsrooms unionized. Now, as you know, the Washington Times, we're not unionized, but I'll, but I'll tell you this. Um, I remember this was about two or three months ago or so. Uh, I was about to do like a, a you know, local TV hit here in Washington, D.C., you know, like a Fox 5 or something like that. Uh, and I, I don't know. I can't remember the guy's name. You know, it was like, you know, like a local, uh, you know, Democrat activist. Uh, Obviously, a union organizer, but I didn't. Uh, but I didn't know at the time. And we were having a, like a perfectly, you know, nice conversation in the green room. And then he's like, "It's like he's like, uh, and who do you work for again?" I said, "Oh, the Washington Times." He goes, "Are you guys unionized?" I go, "No." He's like, he goes, "Oh, okay." But it hmm. was it was almost like one of those things where. I could kind of sense that, ooh, got to work on that. <laughs> <laughs> on you your, know. on your, uh, your response? No. Or I, his, he's got to work on it. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, he, he didn't say that, but it was one of those things that I could sense that he was kind of, I could kind of sense the wheels sort of turning there. You know, it, it was just one of those things where uh, they have to, uh, that, that, that union organizers had been really working on these newsrooms that, you know, looking around where they can pretty much work their way in. You know, I mean, I don't see it happening where I work, you know, we're extraordinarily small, but um, look, they've been working their way into places where they can. Right. Yeah. I've been seeing quite a bit of it. Um, It's, you know, newsroom after newsroom more recently. So kind of curious if, if you're getting a sense of it as well. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I, I mean, I, 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 I think something happened over at the Hill, but I'm not too sure. I'm not too sure, but, uh, I, but I am hearing that more newsrooms are getting unionized. I mean, look, even up on Capitol, I mean, Capitol Hill, I mean, uh, oh, the Congressional Workers Union. Con- yes. Yeah, that's I mean, kind of a mess. That was a huge mess, uh, and and I saw that whole thing go down too, as that uh, entire uh, staffers. They, I mean, they guilted Democrat offices. Yeah. To unionize. I think they've got four right now. I haven't seen any others. Right, right. Let's see how many others are going to end up unionizing. But, but, the, but the reason why they couldn't get 
a whole bunch of others, first of all, it's because there's like, oh, oh, oh there's no way they're going to get Republican offices to unionize. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah. This is just the beginning. Well, and it'll be interesting to f- how much power they give the unions because Congress has a way of exempting themselves from what private sector businesses have to put up with. Correct. But in the same light, look, they got the entire federal government to end up uh, unionizing after how many years now? Yeah. I just read a piece out of the uh, Jacobin or Jacobin, however they pronounce it, um, that was talking about the federal government unions, how there's 2.1 million federal workers, but only 1.2 are unionized, and then only 20% of them pay union dues, which I found to be a fascinating number. Mm. And you know, here's something else that I didn't know about, actually. Um, you just reminded me. Uh, the FBI uh, is not unionized. A lot of people mistakenly think that the FBI Agents Association is is a union, and it's not. It's just a nonprofit that, you know, apparently, you know, they claim that they represent 90-some-odd percent of the, uh, of the agents. Okay, you know, a, a majority of the agents pay dues to this uh, nonprofit that, quote-unquote, represents them. Um, I've heard a lot of my sources are just like they're just a rubber stamp for the brass over at the agency. But the but the problem here with the FBI is that uh, there there is no whistleblower process ultimately, which is why anytime you have whistleblowers over at the FBI, uh, when when they've tried to go to the FBI Agents Association for help. The FBI Agents Association basically just turns their back on them. See, mm, that's interesting. So, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why um, yeah, they, they don't have a union. See, and that's a and 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 that's why that they get abused so horribly <laughs> by their by their own taskmasters. <laughs> the only people who who actually get away with anything over at the FBI are the um, or the uh, upper echelon officers over at the uh, FBI, but like the uh, lower lower level FBI agents, they get completely abused. Well, you know, there's uh, around the country, there's different police associations. There's a couple true unions, but a lot of these, um, these public sector workers, and I'll even include teachers unions with this, they have a tendency to join the unions as members in order to get insurance in case they're sued. So they're, you know, I've got a friend who's a teacher out in Arizona and, and he's not necessarily quote pro union, but mm-hmm. he joined the teachers union because they have such a, you know, for the dues money that's spent, which is not a lot compared to the amount of liability insurance that he gets from them and defense if he's sued and so on. Mm-hmm. And, and I think some of the, Sheriff's associations, things like that, do that as well. Plus, you know, they sheriff's association, for example, would, would if a officer is killed in the line of duty, you know, helps pay for the funerals and all that. Right. But, I mean, it's like the FBI Agents Association, uh, they get a certain amount of 
you know, information benefits, et cetera, et cetera. Right. But, you know, as far as protection uh, from, from management, it's, you know, it's uh, persona non grata. It's, uh, if anything, they end up representing the management more often than not. Yeah. Well, that's not uncommon. Even in private sector unions, that happens. So what, what kind of stuff are you working on these days? Well, other than what I just told you, um, I also uh, have some pieces up that uh, have a lot to do with what we can expect up on uh, Capitol Hill as far as, um, you know, uh, leadership, you know, Kevin McCarthy right now having some problems, you know, kind of getting his, uh, his uh, members in line to uh, support him. I mean, I, I'm not too sure whether or not, uh, you know, like a lot of people think he doesn't have the votes, but I got to tell you, Peter, I do think that eventually he, while he may concede to some uh, demands of the of his right flank, uh, eventually he's likely going to be speaker. I mean, there could be a fight on the uh, floor of the House, which will be very interesting to watch. I think that eventually uh, we're going to see a, a Speaker McCarthy. I, I saw one of the pieces you wrote, um, I guess it was a couple of days ago, about the ballot harvesting. Oh, Re- yes. Republicans wanting to do the ballot harvesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I got to tell you, uh, there's been a lot of uh, sort of hemming and hawing about what could have been done uh, when it comes to uh, the uh, 2022 election. And one of the things that has come out of it is, A, uh, ballot harvesting should be embraced where it's legal and where it's also not illegal, okay? There's a difference there. And uh, B, fight it where, it, where, they can, uh, where they can say it's going to be illegal. So let me explain those differences. So, for example, over in California... Uh, ballot harvesting is legal. It's completely condoned. And so you had people like uh, Mike Garcia. He's a Republican out there, and he's learned how to beat Democrats at their own game when it comes to ballot harvesting. Um, So has uh, Congressman Michelle Steele. She's a Republican as well. And they uh, have taken the whole strategy of ballot harvesting. They have... uh, deployed church members uh, from from the evangelicals and, and so on to uh, help them with a uh, ballot harvesting. Uh, the, the way uh, California Republicans look at it is why leave uh, votes on the table there? So that's how the California GOP looks at it. And the RNC also looks at it the same way. Look, we're going to help Republicans in states like California um, with, uh, with, with the ballot harvesting methods. You know, it's silly to leave votes on the table. So How, go ahead. let me let me interrupt you for a second. Define ballot harvesting. Uh, ballot harvesting is when a third party collects completed ballots from voters and delivers them in bulk to election officials. Um, it, you know, it, like I said, it was long opposed by Republicans who said it was ripe for fraud. But you know, like I just said, uh, it it they're going to Republicans figure it's silly to not do it. Uh, 
if uh, if Democrats where they have super majorities in states are going to uh, use it are, are are going to do it anyway. Now, uh, you know, keep in mind, you know, among the 31 states where voters um, authorize others to cast ballots on their behalf, nine restrict the number of ballots uh, an authorized individual can actually return, and four cap the period of time those ballots can remain in that authorized person's possession, okay? Uh, now, the, uh, these prohibitions, keep in mind, they were, they were established out of concern that providing the convenience of returning those ballots could turn into, you know, urging someone to vote a particular way, like someone in, like, a nursing home, okay, who's, like, you know, pretty old and could, uh, and could be uh, pressured to uh, vote a certain way. So... Republican activists basically celebrated the party's advances with ballot harvesting, even if the results of the um, midterm elections were were disappointing. So you had people like Charlie Kirk over at Turning Point USA. You know, uh, he was kind of psyched that uh, you had a ballot harvesting methods really helped uh, Republicans over in states like uh, Oregon and California and whatnot. So. It's interesting because I've heard now a couple times, yourself included, that if the Democrats are going to set the rules, we need to learn how to play by those rules even better. Correct. However, there's a caveat there. They they also say, you know, once we, uh, you know, play, once we beat them, then should we end up uh, getting power? Should we end up switching things over in California, which is going to take a while? Obviously, they have super majorities there. Right. Then, then we have to switch things back, make it illegal. See, it's kind of like uh, because look, I spoke to um, American Conservative Union Chairman Matt Schlapp, and uh, he said, "Look, part of the problem with the term ballot harvesting is that it, it really isn't clearly defined." You know, he he says that you know. Ballot harvesting is, as far as he's concerned, it's a completely corrupt process that Republicans should reject. However, because it's legal, in some ways, you can say that it's always been legal because you always had people who were handicapped or you always had people who were older or who needed assistance. So the way he looks at it, you know, it's like the law never meant you you couldn't vote because you had uh, – physical handicaps, you know, of course, you know, the left does, as the left does with everything, they run a Mack truck through any kind of little exception. So until Republicans can change the law, they have to adapt to the law until then. Well, and one of the things I noticed, and I, I kind of foresaw the outcome being what it was. Um, There were the red quote wave, like there was no, institutional get out the vote efforts. Right. And the unions, of course, do it. Move on.org, Planned Parenthood. Everybody gets their voters out on the left. There was nothing on the right to do that. Right, right. Um, The Democrats have these get out the vote early. I mean, um, they have the black churches who get like souls to the polls. I mean, they have that um, going on. Um, every election cycle, and that's something that 
Republicans really need to master, like like the early voting stuff as well. Uh, it's something that Republicans, you know, always do day of, but but like somehow Democrats have really taken advantage of early voting, and uh, that's and that's something that uh, Republicans are just starting to really do, especially um, with this Georgia runoff right now for this Senate seat. So let's see um, how well that works out for them right now. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. I think, um, yeah, the the left is probably light years ahead. Uh, maybe not light years, but they are definitely ahead of the right when it comes to get out the vote. And, and part of it is just institutional. Yeah, there's really, other than, say, the RNC, like the, you know, back in 2010, 2012, 14, you had at least the remnants. Well, 2010, you had the Tea Party. But then the remnants of that over the, la- the next two election cycles, there's nothing like that now. Well, yeah. Uh, keep in mind that the RNC had a consent decree on it for, uh, I think, like a couple of decades or so. Uh, I mean, it was uh, the, the the uh, like the judge just um, ended the. Consent decree limiting RNC ballot security activities in uh, 2018. Uh, yeah, it was after like 30 years. The um, the Republicans are free of this uh, federal court consent decree that uh, limited the RNC's ability to to challenge uh, voters' qualifications and uh, target uh, you know ballot fraud. So you know now the uh, GOP is just beginning to kind of get its sort of sea legs over all this. So they're, they have a lot of catch up to do. Yeah. Yeah. That they do. And they don't have a long time to do it before the next election cycle. No kidding. No kidding. Absolutely. So, so what do you think of Trump getting back in, throwing his hat in? Oh, wow. Um, well, from a pure strategic standpoint, uh, on one hand, I get that uh, he the idea of starting early is necessary because uh, one needs to kind of start up like the whole fundraising engine uh, because these presidential elections are getting more expensive every single election cycle. I get that. Um, on the other hand, though, uh, I I'm beginning. I wonder if it's wise to want to start so early to the point where you can flame out way too early, and uh, and and on top of that, he he's become such a polarized figure uh, that I I'm I'm just wondering if 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 he's going to be used too often as as a club to uh, just uh, smack fellow Republicans over the head with. So, you know, it, it can go really either way at this point. And, of course, uh, at the same time, you also have DeSantis sort of waiting in the wings uh, that he's going to be kind of used as the other club that, that like, constantly every, every all the Democrats are always going to be using him to, like, smack Trump over the head with. So here we are again. Yeah, it's... Now, I think it's going to be an interesting next two years. Um, 
And I, yeah, I think if Trump is on the ballot, I think you're going to see another four years of Biden Harris or Harris Newsom or something. So maybe, I mean, uh, I, I may be sort of like not too sure about Trump, not too sure um, about where he's going to be in the next few months. But in the same light, Biden isn't exactly a sure bet either. Okay, Uh, I realize there's this sort of, you know, minor afterglow that like the Democrats are sort of feeling because they're like, ha ha, you know, the Republicans didn't get their way. Uh, You know what? A, uh, we're not even in the new Congress yet. And. And the Democrats still sort of feel like they're in the majority right now because they're not in the minority yet, number one. Um, And number two, uh, need I remind everybody that uh, Jimmy Carter uh, in 1978, the uh, midterms for him actually weren't that bad, okay? I mean, as like crappy of like a a presidency as he had – the uh, midterms weren't that bad for him, and let's all remember how his presidency ultimately turned out. That is true, and we still do have two years to go with Biden. Mm-hmm. But it's going to be an interesting two years, as I said. Well, Kerry Pickett, thank you again for coming on Labor Relations Radio. And sure we need to do this again. Absolutely. Had a great time. I will talk to you soon. Sure thing. Take care, Thanks. Peter. Bye-bye. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. So that was Carrie Pickett, journalist and senior congressional reporter with the Washington Times. I have always enjoyed talking to Carrie. She is extremely knowledgeable about the things that are happening uh, in D.C., and as well as around the country, um, we don't talk all that often. And you'll note that we did not talk about the railroad strike or lack thereof, uh, as the news was just breaking as we're getting on the podcast. In any case, I hope to have her back on at some point in the future. And that wraps up another episode of Labor Relations Radio. I'm your host, Peter List. If you want to reach out, you can reach out on Twitter at Workplace Report. That's at Workplace RPT. Give us a call at 1-888-668-6466 or drop us a line under the audio portion of this episode of Labor Relations Radio. Have a great day. Thanks for listening. You have been listening to Labor Relations Radio. Hey, Labor Relations Radio listeners, this is just a quick reminder. If you enjoy Labor Relations Radio, make sure you share these episodes with your colleagues and make sure you and your colleagues visit laborunionnews.com and subscribe to our News Digest.